0: Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So, do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Backed by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash strange. netsuite.com slash strange. netsuite.com slash strange. Just a note before we begin. This episode may not be suitable for all audiences. I'm Laura Norton, and this is One Strange Thing the show where we search the nation's news archives for stories that can't quite be explained. Strangers, the world has not always been so interconnected as it is now. In an era before we could share strange stories on the web or in a podcast, news simply traveled more slowly over landlines and newspapers and letters. It all seemed practically antique. Still, even decades ago, without a cell phone or that little Bluebird app, you could communicate with friends and strangers in real time. That is, if you had the right equipment. We've mentioned CB radio in passing on this show before, though it's not the institution it was in decades past. But if you've spent time around truckers, you're likely familiar with the term. But for today's story, you're going to need more than just a vague understanding of CB radio, so let's get started with the basics. According to historic tech, CB, or Citizens Band radio, came into existence after World War II. Veterans returning from overseas needed a way to stay in touch with their comrades, as they had in battle, and radio was the logical venue. So the US Navy set up a special radio frequency that the veterans, now turned civilians, could easily use. But as historic tech points out, CB radio's popularity well and truly exploded in the early 1970s for an unexpected, but totally logical reason. In the US, an oil crisis had led to widespread fuel shortages. And to conserve what fuel was available, law enforcement began militantly enforcing a national speed limit of 55 miles an hour. And if you, like the writer of this episode, style your driving after Sonic the Hedgehog, then you'll share her dismay at that speed limit. Suffice it to say that nobody on the road was having a great time in the early 70s, but long haul truckers were perhaps having the worst. So they banded together and used CB radio as a sort of nationwide open forum to share which rest stops did or didn't have gas, to warn others about speed traps, and to coordinate collective action like protests and convoys. Trucker culture has always had an outsized influence on American culture. Something about the romance of it. So, it's not a surprise that CB radio has trickled into everything from country songs to our movies. In 1977, the Bureau of Labor Statistics estimated there were roughly 1 million truckers in the country. But Historic Tech tells us that there were over 20 million people using CB radios. For the non-truckers, this was not a necessary form of work communication. It was a fun new hobby. Now, technically, you were supposed to have a license to operate a CB radio, but, well, we know how that goes. Now, besides the obvious trucker glamor of it, why would a regular citizen want to use a CB radio? Well, for one, it was entertaining. On the CB radio frequency, everyone was sharing a set number of channels, kind of like a web forum. Truckers or landlocked hobbyists, it didn't matter. They all had access to the same channels. Professionals talking about speed traps might be interrupted by random strangers. Random strangers could chat about their lives in far-flung states. In fact, switching between channels, you could overhear the juicy musings of a stranger or get some good info about gas prices or a cacophony of anonymous voices sharing the airwaves. Think of it as a stronger than your average walkie-talkie, but weaker than a domestic phone call and open to everyone with the right equipment. We tell you about all of this, not because today's story is about truckers per se, but you need to understand that CB was increasingly popular and on the cusp of a sort of ubiquity at the time that our story begins. It was August 7th, 1973. The radio channel on the CB radio was 14, and CB radio enthusiasts in and around the American Southwest had just heard something horrifying. It was the small hysterical voice of a little boy who called himself Larry. Larry was in trouble. As Larry and his father drove through an uninhabited area of New Mexico, there'd been an accident. Now Larry was trapped in an overturned pickup truck and his father, still in the driver's seat, was dead. According to the Signal newspaper, Terry Zimmerman, a 33-year-old resident of Southern California, was one of thousands who heard Larry's message on her personal CB radio. She told the Signal that she overheard Larry speaking with a woman in Santa Ana, California, for about 40 minutes. Terry said, I could understand what he was saying. I heard both sides of the conversation. He sounded very dehydrated, like his mouth was full of cotton. His voice was a little whiny. He was cold, hungry, and probably hurt. Strangers, it's hard to tell precisely how the dominoes fell into motion here. We know that The Signal reported that several people phoned authorities in New Mexico about hearing Larry's distress call. The first apparently came in from a CB operator in California. Law enforcement, like everyone else, was immediately worried that the battery powering Larry's radio would die before he could be found and that Larry himself might not be rescued in time. Even if he wasn't badly hurt, it was August in New Mexico and archival weather data shows daytime high temperatures close to 100 degrees Fahrenheit. Dangerous late-summer thunderstorms were also not uncommon. Time was of the essence. The day after Larry was first heard, a massive search effort began. The Alamogordo Daily News reported that searchers were in an area 50 miles southeast of Albuquerque, a rough guess based on what Larry could say and the quality of his radio signal, and they were looking by both land and air a New Mexico amateur CB radio club was brought in to consult with members volunteering to monitor different CB radio stations. It soon became clear that Larry wasn't sure how to use the radio as he was transmitting from at least six different CB channels overnight, starting on channel 21 and eventually landing on channel 14. According to the Daily News, the child was hysterical and he couldn't offer much usable information about where he was or what had happened. The police spokesman said that Larry sounded to be between the ages of five and 10, and someone reportedly heard Larry say something about Nogal Canyon, but the police spokesman said, "'There's at least three Nogal Canyons in New Mexico that I know of and about a half dozen more in other states.'" No missing father and son pairs have been reported in the region, And though the signal wrote that gas station attendants did remember seeing a man and a boy in a pickup truck, they couldn't provide further information. The Associated Press reported that, a day into the search effort, authorities were having trouble figuring out how to progress. Though many people across many states had heard Larry, it wasn't enough to triangulate his location. Larry's signal was breaking up and growing weaker probably because the battery powering his radio was dying. Police told the AP that Larry, quote, could be anywhere in New Mexico or anywhere at all for that matter. That same day, August 8, 1973, the day after the signal was first heard, the Albuquerque Tribune ran an article with a great deal more detail. Though, because this information never appeared anywhere else, we present it for your consideration With a grain of salt. Per the Tribune, Larry had told authorities that he was seven years old and that he'd been out rabbit hunting with his father. Their white pickup truck had flipped over when Larry's father had collapsed while driving. Larry wasn't able to tell authorities where he was from or what town they'd been in last. Larry did report via radio that he could occasionally hear airplanes overhead, and correctly identified the color of rescue flares being shot into the distant sky. But these insights alone did not seem to be enough to find Larry. On August 9th, it had been almost three days since Larry's first transmission, and against all odds, there seemed to be a glimmer of hope. The Albuquerque Tribune reported that air and ground searchers were headed toward Red Canyon near Mountaineer, New Mexico, A search plane had reportedly spotted a pickup truck in that area, and Larry had been able to tell someone over CB radio that he was in or around Red Canyon. 200-odd searchers were descending on Red Canyon, some in ATVs, some on horseback, and some with a team of 40 airplanes. Adding to the collective anxiety and frustration was the fact that more people than ever were cramming the CB airwaves, and they were asking about Larry. This, despite law enforcement requests that they not do that, so that Larry could be as audible as possible when he was able to broadcast. David Doyle, a New Mexico-based volunteer helping with the search, told the Tribune, "'It's unforgivable. It would only take 15 minutes of clear airways for us to pinpoint this little guy. But people who are supposed to be mature adults just won't clear this one channel, not even for 15 minutes.'" Members of the organized effort were desperate to keep Larry talking, even as they struggled to maintain a connection with him. The Albuquerque Journal reported that Army Captain Rick Tweed, who was piloting one of the search planes, told a hungry Larry over the airwaves, Please talk to me. We're going to get you something to eat. We're going to find you. I'm going to find you myself. And I'll get you a double Mac. There was just one problem with that proposal from Captain Tweed searchers still couldn't find Larry. On August 10th, the Albuquerque Journal reported that the search of Red Canyon had turned up nothing, not even the pickup truck that had been allegedly spotted by air the previous day. State Police Sergeant A.B. Whitehouse told the Journal, the bouncing of radio transmitting waves off the rolling hills, canyons, and mountaintops in this area is making the search impossible. We're also having a heck of a time tracking down all these rumors, coming from California to Ontario, Canada, concerning the boy and his father, all of which have proven false to date. Sergeant Whitehouse told the journal that many leads from CB operators around the country claiming to have spoken to Larry had been debunked, and that the state police were dealing with an increasing number of prank callers, mostly children, posing as Larry. And communication from the child himself, wherever he was, was growing more scarce. And still, teams in New Mexico had little, if any, information to work with. Though law enforcement in New Mexico was leading the investigation, it was radio operators in other states who seemed best able to hear Larry. But whenever someone did have a connection with Larry, it was still difficult to hear him. His battery was dwindling, and the airways were crowded with hundreds of CB radio users trying to get his attention. By that point, Larry would follow the occasional instruction to turn his microphone on and off, creating clicks. But when he spoke, it was hard to tell what, if anything, he was saying. As Sergeant Whitehouse told the Santa Fe New Mexican newspaper, we're really in no better shape than we were when we heard the boys' predicament Tuesday evening. The rumors grew more complicated to sift through by the day. According to the Albuquerque Journal, there was an onslaught of CB operators who had apparently heard Larry, and they brought in new information, or perhaps new rumors. Some CB operators were now claiming that the boy's father was actually hurt and not dead, that the boy's name was David, not Larry, that there were in fact two children in that truck and not one, that Larry was not trapped in the truck, but able to leave it and walk around. People around the country were calling the police in New Mexico, saying they'd spoken to Larry and that he was by a dam, or a river, or a lake, or a pond, or a mountain. A number of fathers and children named Larry were ruled out as being that father and that Larry. On August 11th, officials told the Albuquerque Journal that they'd continue the search through the following day, a Sunday. But then, we'll have to go on the assumption that Without food and water, he will be dead. Looking for creepy stories? Then we might have a podcast for you. And now, presenting Rattled and Shook. Rattled and Shook is a weekly podcast that features new scary stories every episode. Kind of like this. I would hear her say things to me inside my head. I couldn't get around him. I was trapped. The other guy started to get pretty agitated. He grabbed my grandfather's oxygen hose and he cut off his oxygen. Then I started thinking, well, you know, who would be hanging around in this nowhere forest, in this nowhere area? And that's when I started looking more closely. And that's when I noticed there were several shapes. And they were slowly working their way toward me as they were moving from tree to tree. New episodes of Rattled and Shook are out every Thursday. Listen for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm sure you've heard the old adage that you should learn something new every day. It's good advice, but with so much to do, are you making time to learn and stay curious about our world? Well... With Everything Everywhere Daily, you can easily make that goal a reality. Everything Everywhere Daily is one of the world's most popular daily education podcasts. In about 10 minutes, you can learn something new every day. The show covers history, science, geography, mathematics, and technology, as well as biographies from some of the world's most interesting people. One listener says the show truly makes my day more enjoyable and entertaining. Fans of the show are so passionate, they even work to join the Completionist Club, the group of dedicated listeners who've listened to all 900-plus and counting episodes. I highly recommend you check out Everything Everywhere Daily's recent episodes on Why Are There No Flying Cars? and The Little Ice Age That Happened 700 Years Ago. Learn something new every single day with Everything Everywhere Daily. Find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Have you ever wondered what it feels like to be attacked by an alligator? Or what goes through one's mind as they're stranded in a snowstorm? What Was That Like is the podcast for you. Real people come on every episode to explain the unbelievable situations they've been through. Guests share how they really felt during their most surreal experiences. They tell us what they did the morning before an earthquake, how it feels to when the price is right, and all sorts of details that you'd never learn anywhere else. If you're interested in hearing disturbing and inspiring firsthand stories, What Was That Like is the podcast you've been looking for. Every story is thoroughly researched and fact-checked, so you know that even the most unrealistic are someone's reality. Listen to What Was That Like wherever you get your podcasts. August 12th, the fifth day of searching, came and went without developments, at least ones that law enforcement felt were worth pursuing. The Albuquerque Journal reported that an amateur radio operator, whom police had previously trusted, claimed she'd spoken with Larry for three hours the previous day. But police publicly said that they could not confirm she was even telling the truth. And there were still no leads on any missing in father-son pairs either. On Monday, August 13th, the Albuquerque Journal reported that the search had effectively ended with empty hands. Four units would continue to keep tabs on channel 14 for a few days in case there were any more transmissions. But Santa Fe police chief Martin Vigil told the journal that the possibility seemed quote, remote. Honestly, looking back, We ourselves might even call that search effort fruitless. Except for one strange thing. There's a strong possibility that there never was a Larry for the devoted teams to find. Despite extensive efforts, the pickup was not located. Bodies weren't found. Nobody ever came forward to law enforcement saying Larry and his father might be their family members. Now... There were those who did think the whole thing was a hoax. By the end of the search for Larry, some law enforcement officials had basically said it themselves without directly saying it. Martin Vigil, chief police in Santa Fe, he was one of those officials. On the day that the search for Larry functionally ended, Chief Vigil told the Albuquerque Journal that none of the transmissions from Larry could be verified as legitimately from a child in distress. He added, There are people who heard the voice and they are convinced it is a boy in need of help. But there are a lot of things that would leave all of us to suppose it might be a hoax. And there's more. There were those who actually admitted to doing some hoaxing, albeit not in a way that made much sense. According to the UPI, One such admission came from a strange man using a CB radio from Colorado or maybe northwestern New Mexico. CB operators south of Denver reported hearing this man in late August of 1973, so a few weeks after Larry was first heard. This man, who as far as we can tell was never identified, was, as the kids say, on one. The gas station owner who first heard his transmission told the UPI, This guy has got to be a psycho. He threatened to kill President Nixon, Vice President Agnew, and then he threatened to kill everyone. He's daring anyone to find him. And then, the owner told the UPI, that man had started speaking in a child's voice. A pleading one, not unlike Larry's. In that voice, he'd said there was no Larry and that, in fact, he'd been behind the whole affair. Well, big, if true, strangers. But we have some doubts. For one, the gas station owner told the UPI that he was getting a very strong signal from this man, so much so that he thought the man might have been in Colorado, not far from Denver. But Larry's signal, as you'll recall, was weak and getting weaker, seemingly regardless of where someone was listening to him from, so, to suddenly, many weeks later, receive a very strong signal in Denver, that would be odd to say the least. And then of course, there's the fact that Larry's story was consistent and pretty convincing to most everyone who heard it. Not much like the ramblings of someone who would be loudly and publicly announcing his desire to kill the president. And though some, like Chief Martin Vigil, were willing to suggest the whole thing was nonsense, other authorities were insistent in the press that it couldn't have been. Staff Sergeant W.A. Schmidt had been monitoring radio signals, and he told the UPI, I personally never had any doubt that this is the real thing. I heard a kid crying, and I just can't believe it isn't the real thing. And State Police Sergeant A.B. Whitehouse told the Journal, I can't hardly believe it's a hoax due to the sincerity of the radio operators and the boy. And, weeks after the search concluded, a CB radio operator who'd helped with the search wrote an absolutely scathing rebuke in the Albuquerque Journal, both to those calling Larry a hoax and to those who'd clogged the airwaves to the point that nobody could tell either way. Alice Padalan wrote, among many zingers, We had to fight off all the walkies who were kids like Larry. Some tried to pass for Larry and misled us, and some did. Why didn't the news force parents to realize what their children were doing? If it was your child, what if someone spread a rumor that you were playing a hoax, but there your child lay beside his possibly dead father, crushed with a truck cab, slowly starving to death? Too many people heard the boys' screams and daily weakening signal on their own radios for it to be a hoax. If true to those everywhere who hindered this rescue, you are guilty of murder in a form. Larry was seven years old in a state of shock and lost. If he tried to give his last name, he was cut off over and over again. I heard Larry say, I can hardly hear you now. It's so noisy. There are compelling points on both sides of the Larry Isle that, in interest of fairness, make absolutely no sense in context. Let's go through them. As Alice Padalan pointed out in the Albuquerque Journal, most sources agreed that Larry, whoever he was, was channel hopping, at least initially. He started on channel 21 and eventually settled on channel 14. Toys and basic walkie-talkies couldn't do that in the early 70s, so if someone was perpetrating a hoax, they were doing it with some fairly advanced CB technology. That was probably not something that an average Joe or Jane would have in their pickup, or that a child would have easy access to. Then there's those who heard Larry while he was on air. It was a really impressive number of people, likely in the thousands. The Albuquerque Daily Tribune reported that radio operators throughout the Southwest and Mountain West had been calling the New Mexico State Police after hearing Larry on their radios. But so had people from Texas, Mississippi, and Florida. And Ontario, Canada. And London. As in England. As in 5,000 miles from Albuquerque. It would be unusual for low-frequency radio signals like CB to travel so far and be at all comprehensible. But, as it turns out, it wouldn't be impossible. The Daily Tribune wrote that thunderstorms in New Mexico had hampered the search in a physical sense, but also that the atmospheric conditions were playing a bigger role in this situation than you might have guessed. As it turns out, those atmospheric conditions had done something too sciencey for us to understand, if we're being honest. But anyway, something happened so that radio signals could skip much farther into the ether than they usually might and be picked up by people well outside their normal range. This might explain why volunteers had such a hard time pinpointing Larry's location. His signal might have been exceptionally hard to track. But, on the other hand, there are practical problems with the story of Larry as we've told it to you. There's the question of how an exhaustive search with so much manpower behind it could yield nothing. When the Albuquerque Journal was reporting on volunteer coordination meetings early in the search, the reporter made a list of questions that prospective volunteers were asking, which law enforcement couldn't and never did answer. Those questions included the following, quote, Why have his signals been picked up in Montana, Ontario, and Arizona in addition to other locations, while New Mexico operators are not getting as many signals? Is he in New Mexico at all? Quote, Why are the batteries in his walkie-talkie or truck radio or whatever still functioning? Authorities said normally that batteries would have been dead from apparent constant use. Quote, why was he able to give little definite information about his location, name, etc. when he was first heard? Quote, Why did he say after a few days that his father was hurt instead of dead as he had previously reported? Quote, How was he able to live in a truck, particularly given the high temperatures the state had experienced in the previous few days? Those are all very good questions. And to be honest, strangers, to tell this story is to put ourselves in a bit of a predicament. We want to believe in the unexplainable, at least most of the time. But to do that here would mean wanting to believe that something terrible happened to someone small and frightened. We don't wish that, and it doesn't seem to us like anyone did at the time. If it was true, a horrible thing happened. And if it wasn't, many, many people were unnecessarily frightened on Larry's behalf because Larry might not even have existed at all. Rather than leaving you on that somewhat sour note, though, we're pleased to tell you that this story has a silver lining. Nearly a decade to the day after the first transmission from Larry was reported, the Albuquerque Journal ran another story about his case. Now, there was no new information to share, not about Larry at least, but some good had come from the whole affair. According to the journal, in the months after Larry's transmission, a number of those involved in his search formed a new organization called the New Mexico Emergency Services Council. The ESC created and released, for the first time ever, a contact list of all the search and rescue units in the state, so that efforts could mobilize much faster in the future. Reforms were also made to the way that state police administer searches. And by 1983, there was a vast array of groups who could help with them. As the journal reported then, quote, New Mexico currently has 60 such units, mostly made up of trained unpaid volunteers and including amateur radio clubs, sheriff's posses, teams of mountain climbers, skiers, scuba divers, and pararescuers. The journal continued that, quote, New Mexico's search and rescue program is now among the best in the nation, if not the best. The New Mexico search and rescue plan is now being copied in many other states. Larry was never found, but because of that search, numerous lives have been saved. Now, we did check strangers, And that same search and rescue program is still in use today. And according to the state's Department of Public Safety, it's been responsible for hundreds of lives saved. So if you're looking for something good to come out of the unexplainable, well, we can't think of anything much better than that. We hope you'll join us next time for another real-life story from the fine print of America's local papers, from the lives of regular people, just like you and me, except for one strange thing. Oh, and strangers. One Strange Thing is an independently produced podcast. To support the show and hear more of the entirely true and enticingly peculiar, join us over on Patreon. There you'll get ad-free releases of our regular episodes, full-length bonus episodes, blogs, and monthly live streams, all for $5 a month. We hope you'll check it out. There's a link in the show notes.